Well, hello again, and welcome to Center Church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And this fall, if you've been around, you know that we have been walking through the book of John together, uh, looking at some different encounters that Jesus has uh, with different people and how uh, the scriptures show us who Jesus is. Uh, We've been calling this series, Come and See. We've been wanting to give you a kind of a, a vision of the biblical Jesus, because so often, we can have a distorted view of Jesus. You may be newer to Christianity, church, this might be the first time in a while that you've been in a church building, and we hope that through looking at the scriptures, we'll be able to give you a biblical view, an accurate view of who Jesus is, because whether it's social media or the news, uh, there's just so many different pictures and people portraying uh, what Jesus looks like. But for believers too, we need to be shaped over and over again to see Jesus faithfully and accurately for who he actually is. So that's why we've called this series, Come and See. Come and see, and our hope is that as we come and see who Jesus is, we would look and live. And spirit and sight, uh, sight in general is, is very important, right? Sight important, we think yes. Okay, so sight. Have any of you ever driven in a car and not quite been able to see correctly? Maybe you're driving down the highway and a rainstorm comes through and you got the windshield wipers going as fast as possible and you might just need to pull off the side of the road and wait for this thing to pass. Or uh, maybe we're coming up on this season now, the ice kind of went over the windshield and you did your best scraping it off, but you kind of just see through the little slivers, the light is shining on there and you probably should pull over and stop, right? You have been there just like me. But you figure out your way, you lean forward and figure it out. Sight is incredibly important. And when we're driving or at any other time, if we don't have it, we are in danger. And in those certain situations, we might be putting others in danger as well. Well, spiritual sight is incredibly important today. And the story that we're coming across uh, with Jesus walking through the Gospel of John is a story that is all about sight. It's about physical sight uh, seen on the surface. Jesus heals a man who's born blind. Uh, But at the end of the story, Jesus teaches those who are listening that the story is not just about physical sight, but it's actually an illustration for us of spiritual sight. And spiritual sight is simply this. It's seeing Jesus as he really is. All right, spiritual sight is seeing Jesus as he really is. And the reality of spiritual sight is just like physical sight, it doesn't just exist uh, in a binary way. You have it or you don't, right? It actually exists on a spectrum. You can be completely, totally, and utterly blind. You can have 20-20 vision, but you also can fall somewhere in between. If you're not a follower of Jesus, the scriptures would teach that you're just spiritually blinded to seeing the truth about who Jesus is as Lord and Savior, If you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus has graciously opened your eyes so that you can see him as Lord and Savior, but the Bible also teaches that you have blind spots. All right, 2 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter tells us that though we have been washed by the blood of Jesus, if we're not walking in the virtues of faith and love and increasing in godliness, we are so nearsighted that we might as well be blind. So you may have been walking with Jesus for a while. You might be a part of our church family. And my encouragement to you today is blindness, spiritual blindness is for you. You need to hear about this. We all have blind spots this side of eternity. And if you're not walking with Jesus, this story is for you as well, because what Jesus is going to do is share with us how we can see him clearly and respond to him as he really is. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this story in John chapter 9. And it is a gripping story. There's a time um, 
I was doing college ministry at UVA, and I had a friend, uh, Spaziani, his last name. That's what he went by. Um, and we were reading the Bible together. We're reading John chapter 8. He's not a believer. We're just kind of talking through it. And uh, all of a sudden, he's kind of toned out, not really paying attention. There's a group of five or six of us reading the story. And he just pokes his head back up, and he said, yo, number nine is crazy. <laughs> he had read ahead and read John chapter 9. and was just blown away by the story. It's, it's, it's great. There's an incredible healing that takes place. A man born blind can see, and then there is an investigation that ensues as the religious leaders are trying to figure out what in the world has just happened in our backyard. What is this man? What is he doing? What is this all about? It is a gripping story made for TV, so we'll walk through that, and then we'll look at some of the lessons that Jesus teaches from this story as an illustration of spiritual sight. So look at me with uh, John, uh, at John chapter 9, verse 1. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. As he passed by, he, Jesus, saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So the story starts, as so many stories in the Gospels do, with Jesus traveling around with his disciples. They're walking, they're eating, they're sleeping, they're talking. They're just kind of going through life together. And they come across this man who's seated outside begging, who was born blind. And the disciples ask a question, a theological, philosophical question. Where did this man's suffering come from? Where did his blindness come from? Why does maybe suffering exist in the world? And the disciples, you know, being wise and thoughtful themselves, uh, narrowed it down to two possibilities about why this disability would exist. They said, Jesus, it must be either that this man in his mother's womb sinned before he was born and therefore was afflicted by God with blindness. That's one option. Or while he was being born, his parents sinned and it was a punishment on them that they would have a child born with blindness. Jesus, which one is it? Was it his sin or his parents? Jesus, as he often does, responds with option C. Right, option C. He said the Bible teaches that yes, in a general sense, right, in a general sense, all suffering that exists comes from sin. There would be no suffering physically in this world if sin was not introduced by the human race. But the Bible also is very clear and it does not teach that every suffering is tied specifically to a sin. Jesus tells them the cause of this man's blindness, in fact, is not clear, uh, but the purpose is clear. He says the purpose, this man was born blind so that God's power and might would be displayed through him, right? This man was born blind for this moment, for Jesus to heal him and then to teach the people there and us today a lesson about spiritual sight that is vital for us to know. This is the same reality for difficulty that we walk through. Sometimes a suffering can be tied directly to a sin, but more often than not, uh, our suffering and difficulty is not tied directly to someone else's or our own sin, but a reality of living in a broken world. Many times the purpose is going to be unclear and the cause is going to be unclear, but God in his grace has let us know that he is working everything together for our good. When we cannot escape the suffering and we cannot explain where it's come from or why it is happening, we can be confident that God is working everything together for our good. You see, for some of you, God's power will be shown with deliverance and healing and miracle and power right now. But for others of you, God's mighty works will be displayed as you show the world that Jesus is more precious than suffering threatens to take from you. 
The Bible does not necessarily make facing difficulty easy, but God's word does have the resources we need to have hope in the midst of suffering. So what we're promised through the scriptures is not ease, but hope in the midst of real hardship. And if that's you today, if you're walking through difficulty that you can't explain and that you just cannot escape, know that your church family is here for you. It's why we have missional communities encouraging you to prioritize ministry, investing in one another, caring for one another, pouring time and resources, especially when life brings challenges that are incredibly difficult. It's why I hope you're in a DNA group where people know you really deeply and can care for you and bless you while you're walking through some difficulty. It's why we, as pastors, love to hear from you so that we can pray for you and hear from you and share with you the truths of Scripture that we have walked through ourselves in difficult times. God's word doesn't make facing difficulty easy, but it does give us the resources we need to have hope in the midst of it. Let's keep going, verse six. Having said these things, teaching them about this suffering, where it came from, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seen. So here, Jesus doesn't just stop and wax philosophic about theology, but in compassion, he turns and he uses his power as the incarnate son of God to heal someone and help someone who is suffering. He anoints this man's eyes with mud, sends him to wash, and the man is miraculously healed. The purpose of this man's suffering has been brought about to show off God's power. Incredible. But why does Jesus do it this way? Right? He could just speak a word, he could snap some fingers, he could just kind of think it, but he decides to spit on the ground, make some mud cakes, stick it on the guy's eyes, send him to a pool. There's probably a lot of different reasons. Commentators list so many reasons. I stopped reading them, just a heads up. I did not read all the way through them. There's dozens of reasons why people think Jesus did it this way, which means nobody really knows, and it's not the main idea. God makes clear in his word what we need to be clear. But one reason I do think is clear, and there's others that are going on, is that Jesus is actually needling at the blind religious leaders of the day. He's starting to get at the illustration of the story that he wants to make. You see, Jesus healed this man on a Sabbath day. If you've been here, you know that the Sabbath is bringing up trouble all the time with Jesus and the Pharisees. And one of their many rules was you couldn't make mud cakes on the Sabbath day. Why? I don't know, but it was one of the rules that they had. And so Jesus already is just starting to needle at them. That's not God's law. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be able to illustrate my story as you respond according to what you think I am breaking in this Sabbath law that you have made up. All right, so I'm going to summarize as we walk through the middle portion of the passage because we have a lot of verses to cover. But this man comes back seen, and the word starts to get around, right? As it would if somebody came in that was blind since you knew them and came to church the next week, and they could see you and just walked right up and gave you a hug, right? Word would start to get around. What happened? The whole town knew him, grew up with him, saw him every day, and the guy for the first time in his life could see. They were confused. Conversation broke out. People were skeptical. They said, is this the same guy or does he just look like him? So they ask him and he says, yep, I'm the guy. Jesus healed me. So the neighbors, still unconvinced, take, the, take him to the religious leaders to dive a little bit deeper into what is going on. So now the Pharisees go ahead and interrogate this man who was healed. What happened? How'd you get healed? Who did it? And the man testified before them, again, the same thing. Jesus put mud on my eyes. I went and washed, and now I see. At this point in the story, the Pharisees are actually split in their perspective on what actually happened. Now, half say that Jesus is not from God. He's a sinner because he broke what they saw to be a Sabbath rule that was from God, even though it was not. The other half had a little bit of pause, and they said, 
but he healed a man blind from birth. Is there something more that we should be looking at? Should we ask a few more questions? So they decide, the Pharisees do, to bring in the parents of this beggar as they consider and as they continue pursuing this investigation to confirm the facts of the case. So they bring the parents in and they ask the parents, what's going on? All right, what has happened? And the parents go ahead and confirm the key facts of the, face, of, of the case. This is our son. He, in fact, was born blind. He was blind until now, and now he can see. So they confirm all of those facts, and the parents ask them to speak a little bit more about who healed him and why and how, but the parents are just out. They know that tension has been rising between Jesus and the Pharisees. They are not trying to get caught in the crossfire. They say, our son is of age. You go ahead and ask him. We told you what we know, and we are speaking no more, right? They did not want to get caught in the crossfire of Jesus and the Pharisees' battle, so they kind of kicked their son to the curb a little bit. Uh, Not the best there. So with this information, the Pharisees call the beggar who'd been healed back again, and at this point, the facts of the case are pretty solid, right? The whole town has seen it. It's the guy. He was blind. Now he sees. There's no denying for them that something very significant has happened, but the Pharisees have made up their mind on the cause behind it. Their belief is this, something pretty incredible did happen, but this is bad news, not good news. Jesus is an enemy, he's possessed by a demon, he's malicious, he's a heretic, something. So what they do is they just lean on this guy who had been healed. They say there must be something that Jesus has done that shows that this was some sort of wicked or dark power, but definitely not God honoring. They lean on him. They say, tell us how he did this. What are we missing? Because we know he's not from God. And the man's response is very simple. He says, I don't know if Jesus is a sinner. All I know is that I was blind, but now I see. They don't like that very much. They press and ask some more questions, and he decides to get a little sassy with them, with the leaders, and he says, I've already answered all these questions. If you would like to be his disciples, you can go ask him yourself. And at that point, you will not be surprised to know that the Pharisees responded with an arrogant rage, cast him out of the synagogue, saying, you who were born in utter sin, would you teach us, the rulers and leaders and religiously impressive of Israel? And what we get at this point in the story is a picture starting to form around Jesus' main point, what he is illustrating through this healing. Jesus is right in front of these Pharisees, but they cannot see him because he is blind. They had an expectation of the Messiah and and an interpretation of the religious rules that Jesus did not fit into, and because they had that built up, it acted just like a shield over their eyes, and they could not see through it to the Messiah that was right in front of them. They were so confident that they could see that it, in fact, made them blind and led them to throwing this man out of the synagogue. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? The beggar answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. The story of the beggar in this passage is pretty incredible. He moved from not knowing Jesus to claiming Jesus had healed him to saying Jesus was a prophet to standing up for Jesus publicly to now bowing and worshiping at Jesus' feet, believing that he is the Messiah. And this story is wrapped up as Jesus commentates on the events, declaring how this is a picture, the physical healing is a picture of spiritual sight. Jesus explained for them what happened in verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. 
Some of the Pharisees heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So here's the main idea of this story, of this passage, and of what Jesus is teaching. All right, Jesus came to blind those who think they see, and he came to give sight to those who know they're blind. Jesus came to blind those who think they see, and he came to give sight to those who are aware of their blindness. This beggar's physical blindness and healing is an illustration of our spiritual blindness and desperate need for sight. And unfortunately for us, spiritual blindness is a far worse danger to us than physical blindness. Physical blindness does cause all sorts of problems, but for one main reason, spiritual blindness is even more dangerous. Here are the words of biblical counselor Paul David Tripp. Spiritual blindness blindness is not like physical blindness. When you're physically blind, you know you're blind, so you compensate for this significant physical deficit. But spiritually blind people are not only blind, they are also blind to their own blindness. They think they see well, so the spiritually blind person walks around with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of himself than he does. These Pharisees were so convinced that they were right about Jesus and the law that they missed the Messiah standing right in front of them. These Pharisees were so blind that they did not just miss him, but in fact became his greatest earthly opponents and enemies. These Pharisees were sincere in their desire to honor God, but they were completely spiritually blind. And make sure you catch that. Spiritually blind people can be authentic and sincere and passionate like these Pharisees were, but the Pharisees were blind. They were so blind that they succeeded in having the God they claimed to worship murdered by Roman authorities. Spiritual blindness was my story too. Um, I wonder if it's yours as well. But I grew up going to church. I was in church all the time. Uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, any other night of the week where it was open. Lock-ins, all that good stuff. Anybody else testify to that? Going up in church. Okay. So, but I was spiritually blind. Um, I could know all the answers in Bible class. I could regurgitate the gospel, Bible drill. That was my jam. I was winning that thing left and right. But I was blind. By the time I got to high school, I lived with this like clear and distinct perspective on following Jesus that just exposes my blindness. When I got to high school, I, 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 I thought this actively and intentionally. I know Jesus died for my sins. I know I don't need to go to hell because I'm like on his team. But following him kind of takes the fun out of life. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to do what I want to do for maybe the next 10 years or so, 20 years or so. I'll get older and then I'll settle down, have kids, get right with God. We'll work all of that out and deal with that. But for now, I'm just going to, I'm going to do me and I know I'm good not going to hell because Jesus died on the cross for me and all that. Right? I could not see loving and serving Jesus as being joyful or meaningful in any way. All I saw was using Jesus however I could to get what I really wanted. If I needed my parents to think I was staying on the straight and narrow in college, I let them know I was going to church like once a semester with my friends <laughs> um, or whatever that looked like. All I knew was using Jesus for my own end. That's how I lived for at least six years before the Lord opened my eyes. I thought I could see, but in fact, I was utterly blind. I missed the real Jesus for so long, and the Pharisees missed him too. They were blinded by those flawed expectations, by misunderstanding the law. Really, they were blinded uh, by bad theology, 
right? They had a bad theology, a bad understanding of who God was. So when God came, they couldn't see him because they had a different expectation. So they missed it. They couldn't see it. For some of you out there, a, blind, a bad theology might be the reason you struggle with blindness. In our current cultural moment, though, like deep, deep academic study of like theology is probably not the primary reason we're blinded. Um, so what I want to do is just walk through in conversations with other people and in my own life where blind spots come from in some common different ways so that we can be aware, whether we're believers or not, where, where blocks to our sight of Jesus might come from. So the first one's this. You might be blinded by your goodness. Or you might be blinded by your goodness. You might say, I don't feel a desperate need for Jesus because I'm not that bad of a person. And if we don't believe or we can't see that we are sinful, we will be blinded to Jesus. Right? The chief and primary reason that Jesus came was to save sinners. And if you don't put yourself in that camp, in that bucket, like I'm a sinner, Jesus isn't for you. Right? There's no need for Jesus. There's blindness to Jesus if Jesus came to save sinners. And this is not just for non-believers. As Christians, we too can be blinded by our so-called goodness. We forget the sin that we have been saved from. Maybe we kind of work out some of the public, ickier, nastier sins so we can walk in more like respectable sins in our lives. But we kind of move on past the, some of the more intense brokenness. But we forget that we're still a work in progress. That this side of eternity, we have so much brokenness inside us and work to be done on our character, and we slowly become blinded by our so-called goodness and struggle to see Jesus clearly for who he really is. Right? This is what God saved me out of. This is the area of blindness that I had. I had a crisis of goodness when the Lord uh, saw fit to open my eyes and give me sight. Um, unfortunately, in college, I'd been walking in this way I described to you, and um, uh, uh, publicly, friends found out. I kind of walked in sin and broke some relationships and just became like ashamed uh, of myself and, and really embarrassed about how I was carrying myself. It was, it was a rough time. You know, I, I was, it was not fun. But in his grace, the Lord used that severe mercy to show me that I was not nearly as good as I thought I was. And I had such a greater desperate need for his goodness than my own. And it was that season when I got a clear picture of my sinfulness in God's grace that for the first time I said, Jesus, you, you would save a wretched sinner like me. You would love me. You would give yourself on the cross for me even though I have used you and even though I plan to go a different way and just come around back at the end. Even though I do that, you'd save me. And that is how the Lord opened my eyes when he showed me how broken I was through an embarrassing and shameful season of my sin being made public. So you might be blinded like me by your goodness. Another way uh, you may be blinded is you may be blinded by comfort. You may be blinded by comfort. You might say, I don't feel a desperate need for Jesus because my life is pretty good as it is. Well, Jesus came first and foremost, like I mentioned, to save us from our sin. While he was on earth, he met a bunch of different physical needs. We see that in this story. We have seen it all throughout the Gospel of John. But our temporary physical needs are meant to be a gateway to our eternal spiritual needs. And when we don't feel our temporary needs, we are often closed off to receiving Jesus for our forever needs. And isn't it true that throughout your life, some of the times that you have been closest and most intimate with Jesus was a time when a comfort was removed from your life? Right? Maybe it was the kid that was sick and you did not know the next step, how to make them get better, and you weren't sure how it was going to play out. And that comfort was taken away and it helped you press into Jesus, give you clarity of your need for him in a way that you didn't have before. 
Maybe it was a lost job. You didn't know where the resources were going to come from to continue paying the mortgage or the rent. And it pressed you into Jesus in a new way when the comfort was removed. I see this all the time in college students. They get dumped and grow like a weed, right? They have the comfort of a relationship removed. And they press into the Lord in a new and meaningful way. So you might be blinded by comfort. And it's possible to live a life in such a way that you kind of set it up not to need Jesus, and that slowly calluses your ability to sense your need for him and to become blinded to him over time. All right, a third one here. You might be blinded by your objections. All right, you might be blinded by your objections. You might say, I don't feel a desperate need for Jesus because his teachings are just not good. This is most common or most similar to the Pharisees' objections, right? They said, Jesus, we don't want to follow you because we don't like who you are, what you teach, and what you represent, right? We don't want to be about that. We reject that you are the Christ because we don't like the way that you are and what you're doing. Today, many people will look at Jesus' teachings in the Bible around money or sexuality or any host of things and decide that the God they want to follow would never teach what the Bible teaches on different issues and different topics. Therefore, Jesus of the Bible is not the true God. But here's the problem. To evaluate Jesus by his ethical teachings is to make yourself God. You are evaluating for yourself what is right and wrong and not submitting to the God who created the universe. So my encouragement to you, if you're blinded by some of his teachings, is not to start with the ethical teachings first. That's the periphery. You need to go straight to the source, to the center. Who is Jesus? Is he Lord? Is he Messiah? Is he Savior? Is he God? If so, we need to joyfully and humbly submit to his teachings, even if we don't quite understand them in our context and in our moment. If Jesus is Lord and Savior and God and Messiah fulfilling prophecies, then Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And his healing with mud cakes on the Sabbath is good and something to be celebrated, not something for him to be shamed for. Is the Bible true? Is Jesus the Messiah? If these things are, yes, then Jesus is God, and we need to joyfully and humbly submit to all of his teachings, even if we can't see how it might be best. So whether it's because of bad theology, uh, goodness, comfort, objections, or something else, uh, we all have blind spots in seeing Jesus. And what I want to do is just give you a couple of ideas of how you might pursue seeing Jesus more clearly, more faithfully. So first one is this. Uh, read the Bible every day. Right, you came to church. You expect to hear that one. Read your Bible. <laughs> That's what you got there. Read your Bible. I often hear about people talking... So you hear people talk about reading the Bible like it's some kind of discipline that you need to do every day to impress God with how like rigorous you are and your consistency of Bible study. That is not what reading the Bible is about, right? Your time with God daily is a blessing and a joy in the sense that it can be like a little mini worship service for you to prepare your heart, to align your heart with God's desires for the day, to hand your burdens and anxieties over to him, to be reminded of his character and his promises and how he is going to be faithful to you and to his word that day. But also during this time, the Holy Spirit, through the Word, will really graciously point out areas of blind spots in your life. This can be a consistent prayer for you in Psalm 19, 12 through 14. It says, who can discern his errors? Right? I, I can't even discern my own errors. I'm blind. Declare me innocent from hidden faults, the one that I'm hiding or the ones that I can't even see. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, the one that I just kind of do, um, and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As you read the word, as you go to the Lord in prayer, there's a worship service you get to do, and the Holy Spirit in grace and in mercy will clear out blind spots so that you can see Jesus more faithfully. So that's the first one, read the Bible. Second one is living community. Read the Bible, go to church. There you go. You could have expected those two. Other believers will help you see blind spots. 
All right, sometimes that will happen through a challenging, kind, and loving word saying you need to work on that. Maybe it'll come from your spouse. You need to work on that. Maybe it'll come from somebody else. But more often, I have found in my life that the actions and the life and the behavior of other believers call out my blind spots in ways that their words um, sometimes do and sometimes don't. For example, I'm praying with another believer who is just earnestly pursuing the Lord in prayer with belief and faith and zeal and passion and dependence. And in that moment, a blind spot is called out. Like, what, what are you not seeing about Jesus that they are? They, they're, they're interacting with Jesus in a different way than you interact with Jesus in the time in the morning. What is going on? By their example, by the way the Spirit is working in them, the Lord is calling to me graciously blind spots that I have that I might turn from and know him more deeply. This is God's grace. And for those things to be happening, you've got to have relationships in real life with other believers you get to see work out their faith in a number of different ways and be pointed to Jesus in clarity of seeing him. So these are gifts. These two things are gifts that God gives us. If you want to walk with clearer sight of Jesus, things that you can continue walking in and stepping into, gifts God gives us to help us see Jesus clearly. But if you remember, uh, before we started, we talked about how the problem with spiritual blindness is that oftentimes you don't know you're blind. The problem with the blind spot oftentimes, you don't even know the blind spot is there. So how do we know if we are seen clearly? Well, in this story, Jesus sets up the Pharisees as the bad example of those who are spiritually blind as he's making his illustration and teaching point. But he also sets up the man who is healed as an example of someone who sees physically, but also someone who's given spiritual sight to, to see him. So what we can actually do is look at some characteristics of people who have spiritual sight as we look at that man. So I've got three characteristics of spiritual sight for you. But you can kind of look at your life and see if these characteristics, um, if these characteristics are true of your walk with the Lord right now. So the first characteristic of spiritual sight is awareness of need. All right, awareness of need. When Jesus gives you spiritual sight, your eyes will be opened to your need for Jesus. Right? In a physical sense, this man was very needy. He was blind. But in a spiritual sense, he was also needy. And we see that by his, uh, you know, immediate obedience. Uh, we see that by his worshiping Jesus. He is just like ready to go. He is ready, needy for Jesus to come and ready to respond. So awareness of need is key. And I think one of the ways that we see our awareness of need most clearly, and if we can tell if we're walking in true neediness before the Lord, is our prayer life. All right, needy people pray. If you have it all together, if you have it all figured out, and you don't need anything from Jesus, you won't pray. But as you have spiritual sight to see your need for Jesus, you'll pray, right? You'll pray. You need two things if you're going to pray. First, you need to know that you're not enough. You need to know that you're not enough for your spouse. You need to know that you're not enough for your kids. You need to know that you're not enough to live a life of kingdom impact. You need to know that you are not enough, but you need the love and power of God to flow through you for the good of others. You need to know you're not enough if you're going to pray. You need to know your need. Second, you need to know that God provides. God is a good and gracious king, and though I am not enough, God in his grace and mercy loves to send his power and love through you to be a blessing to the other people where you're not enough. He loves to shine through broken vessels, so I'm confident when I pray that he will fill me with his power to do everything that he is calling me to do. This is the first characteristic we see from this man of, of uh, spiritual sight, and that's awareness of need. What does your prayer life say about your awareness of your need before the Lord? All right, second characteristic of spiritual sight is public testimony. All right, public testimony. 
when you've seen something, something crazy, you testify about it. I was in New York this week. We went and saw Wicked. It was awesome. It was a great Broadway show. We had a great time. I've told like 17 people this morning. We had a blast. It was a great time. When you see something, you, you, you share it with others. When you see something you're excited about. When Jesus transforms your life, when you remember what Jesus has saved you from and know what Jesus has saved you into, you can't help but testify about him to others. You will overflow in a way that your kids will get tired of hearing it. You'll push some boundaries of professionalism at work talking about Jesus. Your family will know that something is different about you when you come home for Christmas. Right? We see this in the book of Acts as the gospels exploded. Jesus died, rose again, ascended, the Holy Spirit came. They start talking about Jesus to everyone. The Jewish leaders hated it. They try to continue to tell them, stop talking about it, stop talking about it. And this is what the Jewish leaders said about the disciples rejecting their authority in Acts 4.13. Now when they, um, the Pharisees, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Why? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. The disciples in that same conversation are told to stop talking about Jesus. We're going to beat you. We're going to shut you up. Stop talking about Jesus. And the disciples say this, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They saw something incredible in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the receiving of forgiveness in the Holy Spirit, that they could not stop talking about it. Spiritual sight leads to public testimony. So a question I have for you is, do you see that something incredible has happened in your life? Are you blown away by what Jesus has done or is doing in your life? If not, there could be one of two problems. One, it could have just grown grown cold and stale over time. The amazement that once was there, you've grown a little blind spot, and you're not as thankful and excited about what Jesus has done for you. That's that's true. We can repent and turn from that. But there's a second reason. You might have just grown up around church and not had a, a true saving experience where Jesus has really deeply transformed you. You've never had anything to be amazed about because you've never truly encountered the power and the love of Jesus. If you're not amazed by what Jesus has done for you, it's one of those two things, and both of them, the response is the same, repent and believe. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Trust in him and be amazed that he would save people like us. That's the second one, public testimony. All right, the third one is uh, worship. The third characteristic of spiritual sight is worship. When you see Jesus as he truly is, there's so many different ways to respond, but all of it will be in, uh, under uh, the umbrella of worship. Uh, Copernicus was a mathematician, astronomer, theologian hundreds of years ago, and one of his main uh, d- contributions was that he discovered that, in fact, uh, the earth uh, was not the center of the universe, but the sun was the center of the universe, and the earth revo- revolved around the sun rather than the sun revolving around the earth. And worship, really simply put, is a Copernican revolution of the soul. It's realizing that I am no longer the main point in my story with everything revolving around me, but in fact, I am part of a larger story revolving my life around Jesus and what God has done through Christ. You realize that your life should revolve around Jesus than making Jesus one of the planets that orbits you. Right? This is worship. Seeking to know and to love and to obey God above all else. Singing songs on Sunday morning is a beautiful and precious expression of worship. But worship is what you do. It's what you overflow with. It's what characterizes you when Jesus opens your eyes to see him as he really is. When he opens your eyes and you realize that everything revolves around him. So a few of those characteristics of spiritual sight that we see in this man. He was aware of his need. Right? He publicly testified, and he worshiped. He bowed at the feet of Jesus, and he worshiped. 
So the question uh, we're left with is, how is your eyesight? All right, how is your eyesight? Because I think the danger here, landing on those three characteristics, is you could leave here thinking, to be a good Christian, I need to worship more, I need to remember my need more, like whip myself on my back with my need, and I need to testify publicly more boldly. And those things may be true as a response of faithfulness, but what those are characteristics of those who truly see. So I don't just want to tell you to go do those things more and harder. What I want you to do is say, hey, are those things true of me? And if they are true of people who have spiritual sight, what might that mean for me? And where is my spiritual sight broken? Where do I have blind spots? Have I never seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ before? Where are my blind spots and how can I see Jesus more faithfully? The question is not how can you do these better. The all-important question is are you seeing Jesus as he really is? Are you seeing Jesus as he really is? And these are just a diagnostic to get you to wake up if these things aren't true. Nothing to beat yourself up about but to say, Lord, I'm not seeing you clearly. Help me. And here we get to the beauty of the gospel. Our problem is worse than we imagined, right? It's not just like I don't testify as I should. It's not just I don't worship as I should. It's not just I'm not as aware of knees as I should. But it's in fact something so much deeper. It is I don't even see Jesus correctly, right? That's my problem. I don't see Jesus correctly. And the good news of the gospel is that is exactly what Jesus came to deal with. Right, as we confess our inability to see him, as we confess our um, inability to see clearly, Jesus came for those who know they are blind that he might give them sight. As we go to him, as we ask him, he loves giving sight to those who are blind. So I think there's probably a couple of groups uh, in here today of different people. There's probably more. Uh, But the first is uh, there's a group of people, I think, that Jesus has been opening your eyes for the past few months. Maybe as we've been walking through the Gospel of John, as you've had some friends here at church, maybe you've been reading the Bible with some friends outside of this or starting to read on your own, maybe for the first time, Jesus is starting to give you eyes to see his beauty and his glory. And it's time to go all in. Jesus is coming to you and saying, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God who has come to take away the sins of the world and your sins. It's time for you to turn from sin, to trust in Christ and receive the gift of salvation, throwing the weight of your life on the strength of Jesus. Maybe in this season, for the first time, you see your sin. You see his sacrifice and you believe. And it's time. It's time to, like this man, bow and worship. Is today the day that you need to trust in Christ and begin to follow him? Come to him. He will not turn you away as you bring your sin and your shame. He gives you forgiveness and identity as his child. Come to him. Another group in here, though, likely the majority in here, you've been following Jesus for a long time, and some sight issues have developed. You've got some blind spots. Maybe you've forgotten your need. You've lost your boldness. Your worship's grown cold and stale. But I think that will all trace back to a sight issue. What you need is not to work harder. You need to look at Jesus. Ask the Lord for help. Confess how you don't see him clearly and you want to be reminded of his glory and his love. Lord, open my eyes to see your glory in Christ again. Let this be your consistent prayer. And an encouragement to you, this side of eternity, it's not gonna be perfect. 
you're always going to have blind spots. We are wearing the baggage of sin. We're wrestling in a war with that. It's always going to be imperfect this side of eternity. 1 Corinthians 13 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known in 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, and catch this, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. The hope for us is that we wrestle with dimly lit eyes right now and sin covering our perfect vision. One day Jesus is going to return and we're going to see him face to face. And for eternity, seeing him clearly will no longer be a struggle with blind spots, but it will be joyful worship forever. For now we fight to look then we will look with ease and joy and pleasure forever. This is the theme of the Gospel of John. Come and see so that you can look and live. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you open the eyes of the blind. We thank you that you move in our hearts and our lives to show us the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. I pray that for anyone who has not believed in you, that you would open their eyes in this moment to see the beauty of the gospel. They would repent and believe. I also pray for our church family, that we would see you more clearly, that we would turn from blind spots, that we would enjoy you and love you and worship you.